This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today we air the last episode of Flux, Season 2. Flux is a Fresh Ed series where graduate students turn their research interests into narrative-based podcasts. This episode was created by Michael Rumblow, a PhD student at the University of Bristol. In his Flux episode, Michael takes listeners on a sonic journey to explore block play. He weaves together sounds and ideas to show the power and possibilities of play. I hope you enjoy today's episode. as a mathematics teacher. Well, years training and a year's teaching. The most stressful job I've ever had. And in the rare fleeting moments when it felt like it was going well, the best job I've ever had. I don't know what the students made of it all. Maths lessons can be a nightmare for a lot of children. And a lot of teachers for that matter. So much anxiety. In kindergarten, children seem quite happy playing with blocks or running around outside in nature, playing games and singing songs. Then something happens in primary school when formal maths lessons start. I wonder if there's some way of reconnecting with that spirit of kindergarten. That's where I trained, on the left, the Institute of Education, here in Bloomsbury in London. A huge, modernist building, made of big concrete blocks, like some kind of Minecraft castle. The building's like a grid, as if it was designed on squared paper. So many square windows, in a long row, hard to count. They say the corridors are so long, if you lie down and look along the floor, you can see the curvature of the earth. Hmm, I wonder if that's true. Fortunately, I know a man on the inside who can let me in. I'm here on the seventh floor, at the end of the corridor. I'll start here. One, two, three, four. So let me think. Meters. After the French Revolution, they wanted a universal unit of measurement that wasn't decreed by a king. So they based it on the Earth. At first people suggested the equator, but others said no. The equator was against the principle of equality, because the equator only went through some countries. Instead they decided it must be the distance from the equator to either pole, because that line could be drawn through every country. 
So they decreed in 1793 that a new unit, the centimetre, was a billionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. Bearing in mind no one had been to the North Pole yet, but they reckoned they could work it all out using geometry. That's the last bit. Okay. That's 137 metres long. In computer-friendly binary numbers, that's 1000101. I've propped open the door so I can see all the way down the length. Hang on a sec. Here I am, shouting from the other end. It's really long. And if I lie down, I'm just pressing my eye against the floor. It's hard to tell because the carpet is a bit fuzzy, but it looks, it looks completely dead flat right to the end. No curve at all, I can see. Okay, I've got some little one centimeter maths cubes here to help me work it out. So a billion centimeters from the equator to the North Pole, that's a billion of these one centimeter cubes laid end to end, would end up curving around the Earth 90 degrees. So a billionth of 90 degrees curvature per centimeter, which over 137 meter corridor comes out at about a millimeter. Perhaps the world is a lot flatter than I thought. Okay, so I could have worked that out without smelling the carpet at the IOE. But then I wouldn't have, well, well, I wouldn't have smelt the carpet at the IOE. A lot of the roots of mathematics are in nature. Geometry, literally earth measuring. Geo, earth, and metry, meter measure, from the same root word as mens, month, moon, as in commensurate, the full moon, quarter moon, new moon, earth, moon and sun, two bodies orbiting in space, and the pull of the third, the three body problem, or is it a problem? Since ancient times, humans have arranged giant stone blocks to measure the movements of the stars. By the power of star and stone. Welcome everyone to Stanton Brew to celebrate this winter solstice. Once upon a time, there was a... And it split into two. And it split into two. And it split into two. And two. And two. And two. And two. And two. So I'm crossing the road now into Tavistock Square. I say square, geometrically speaking, it's more of a rectangle, twice as long as it is wide. And when they first developed it in the early 1800s, technically they weren't selling the square so much as the Georgian townhouses around it, which are about four stories high, so if anything it's more of a cube or a cuboid or perhaps a parallelepiped. 
But Tavistock Cuboid probably didn't sound such an attractive address in those days, so square it is. There are lots of these squares around here, kind of tiling this part of London. Gordon Square, Russell Square, Bedford Square, usually named after the original landowners or their wives. Here there are still the original townhouses with their classical Georgian architecture, based on musical harmonies. Goethe called architecture frozen music, a music liquid architecture. So for instance, if you look at the windows, they're all the same width. On the top floor, they're square. Lower down, they're double heights. The music double the pitch is the same note an octave higher. And below that, they're triple height. This ratio of two to three is one of the most common harmonies in music. The ancient Greeks believed that two was the female principle and three the male, and that the harmonies of these vibrations resonated with their gods, the planets in the heavens. And if you run a stick around the double-length window, tapping each corner, you would get a double-length beat followed by a single beat along the short side, a threeness in the two-ness, like the rhythm of a waltz or a heartbeat, like the rhythm of the corners walking around Tavistock Square or dancing around it. so-called irrational harmonies that didn't fit these female-male 2-3 ratios, like the side of the square with its diagonal, caused the ancient Greek philosophers problems. And all around, trees soar up through the top of the cuboid. I've been looking at mathematical blocks so long I'm starting to see cubes crystallising everywhere. Once upon a time, there was a... And it split into two. And it split into two. And it split into two. Once upon a time, there was a... And it split into three. And it split into three. And it split into three. Here I am, in the south corner of the square, next to a bronze statue of Virginia Woolf's head, with blank, pupilless eyes looking haunted and melancholy, gazing north, diagonally across the square. Virginia Woolf used to live here with her husband Leonard Woolf in the 1920s and 30s at number 52. While they were living here, Virginia fell in love with Vita Sackville-West and wrote a novel about her and for her, Orlando, the romantic adventures of a time-travelling, 300-year-old, gender-changing English aristocrat. The wolf circle of artistic friends, the Bloomsbury set, had lots of love affairs and relationships between themselves. There is a book about them called Living in Squares, Loving in Triangles, full of the hopes, anxieties and sometimes chaotic balancing of love triangles, the relationship with another couple's relationship and Virginia would compose her novels walking along this path around Tavistock Square. I'm going to follow in her footsteps, guided by her words. Words, English words, are full of echoes, memories, associations. They've been out and about on people's lips, in their houses, in the streets, in the fields, 
so many centuries. Words live in the mind. And how do they live in the mind? Variously and strangely, much as human beings live, ranging hither and thither, falling in love, meeting together. There's a scent of flowers, roses, and the birds are in full song. Ah, there's a dead rat lying halfway across the path. I'll take that as a good omen. And there are so many trees. Here on the next corner, the west corner, is one of the tallest. Must be over a hundred, maybe two hundred years old. It would have been here when Virginia Woolf was walking around this path. Maybe she even paused to put her hand on the tree trunk like this. Ah! My roots go down to the depths of the world, through earth dry brick and damp earth, through veins of silver and lead. My hair is made of leaves, I am rooted to the middle of the earth. The roots make a skeleton on the ground, with dead leaves heaped in the angles. Once, 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 once upon a time, there was a seed that split into two. That split into two. Once upon a time, there was a branch that split into two branches. That split into two. Walking over to the north corner, there's a plaque. Charles Dickens, novelist, lived in Tavistock House near this site, 1851 to 1860. That must have been a grand house. He was at the peak of his success and lived there with his wife, Catherine, and their 10 children. Then in 1858, Catherine opened a mysterious packet, which a jeweler had accidentally delivered to Dickens's home address. And inside, she found a gold bracelet with a note from Charles. To his 18-year-old lover, Ellen Turnan, an actor in one of his plays. The Dickens' marriage broke down, and Charles eventually forced Catherine to move out and leave their children with him. While he was living here, Dickens started his own weekly magazine, Household Words, to serialise his new novel, Hard Times, with its satire of Victorian education. Now what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. The magazine also published articles on Victorian London life. There was a new kind of school for young children, open just around the block by the east corner of the square, almost backing on to Dickens's garden. He could probably hear the children playing. The school was based on playing with simple wooden blocks, singing and dancing, and spending time in nature. Dickens loved it, championing the new play-based approach in his magazine. With these forms of the cube, sphere and cylinder, there is a great deal to be done and learned. They can be played with at first according to the child's own humour. We'll run, jump, represent carts or anything. 
A child will see fishes in stones and be content to put a cylinder upon a cube and say, that is papa on horseback. He would have walked along this side of the square to visit the school. Here it is. It's now a cafe. In 1853, this is the spot where the first English-speaking kindergarten was opened by two refugees from Germany, Bertha and Johannes Ronger. Bertha had divorced her husband in Germany to flee to London with her lover, Johannes, who was a defrocked Catholic priest and anti-establishment activist wanted by the German authorities. Bertha had studied the revolutionary educational ideas of Friedrich Froebel, the inventor of kindergarten, back in Germany. There, kindergarten had recently been outlawed, so the Rongers decided to open a kindergarten here in London. Karl Marx, another German exile, lived a few blocks away and couldn't stand Johannes. Johannes Ronger is certainly not the author of the Book of Revelations. There is nothing mysterious about him. He is banal, hackneyed, as insipid as water, lukewarm dishwater. But then by spreading Froebel's ideas, arguably the Ronger's kindergarten revolutionised education more than Marx ever did. When Bertha's sister Margarita came to visit, Johannes introduced his friend Karl Schertz to her, and the two fell in love and got married and emigrated to America, where they opened the first kindergartens there, and the movement spread around the world. childhood. His mother died when he was a baby, and his father was a stern Lutheran pastor. Growing up in a village in the Thuringia Forest in Germany, he would spend hours playing alone in the garden or wandering in the woods, as if finding comfort in connecting with Mother Nature. Then, as a young man, he took a job as an assistant to a professor of crystallography in Berlin and looking into crystals and seeing their cubic structure, he had a transformative revelation. It was as if the crystals were speaking to him. Many things, both old and new, my dear cube brings into view. So my cube much pleases me, because through it so much I see. It is a little world. He now saw that children, playing with blocks, create worlds in the same way that the earth forms structures from crystals. Children in block play are imitating nature. And he saw in the form of the cube a pedagogical significance. The twofold mirror symmetries of the cube, its top and bottom sides, back and front, left and right, resemble feelings, mirroring. Whereas the threefold symmetry of the three edges meeting at each corner resembles new knowledge a third perspective emerging from a twofold relationship. Froebel called his new school for young children a kindergarten, literally a child garden, because he believed children grow naturally like trees, just as saplings need sun and water and fertile soil. They just need the right environment. 
and simple wooden building blocks so children could imitate nature's process of crystallization in play, creating worlds with their imagination, now became central to Feubel's kindergarten pedagogy. His insight that simple raw building blocks unleash children's creativity more than finished toys would inspire Lego over a century later. Children were encouraged to play with these blocks and make whatever they liked, whether models of things in the world around them, or pleasing symmetrical patterns, or symbols like the letters in their name, freely expressing their feelings and ideas. The Rongas wrote a guidebook for kindergarten teachers with illustrated examples, like a garden bench made out of eight cubes, which in play the children could story and world into an idyllic family scene. Let us make a seat in the garden. Oh, how warm is the air. How bright is the sun. How lofty are the trees. Now Papa and Mama can sit while we gather pretty flowers in a nosegay. And the same eight cubes could be used to conjure darker, even horrific worlds, just as familiar to many children in Victorian London. So the garden seat by moving two cubes, may be transformed into a gravestone. Here is a monument. Did you ever see one? Where? In the cemetery, churchyard? Can Sarah build a monument? Little Sarah may build one for dear little Fanny, who was burned to death. She played with the fire, lighted bits of paper to look at the pretty sparks, and her clothes caught fire and she ran about crying for help, but the fire would not wait. It burned more and more, she ran, the more it flamed, and when she was found, her dear face was disfigured. Her hands and arms and neck were all burned to a cinder, and she soon died. And this embodiment of both dreams and nightmares in blocks continues in online block play platforms such as Minecraft, with its creative mode. Minecraft and Lego is really similar. And you can make all sorts of different um, houses, flowers, you can spawn in trees. As well as its survival mode, where you may be attacked by flame-throwing monsters and skeletons riding giant spiders. As children, the artists George Braque and Piet Mondrian, the architects Frank Lloyd Wright and Le Corbusier, growing up at the end of the 19th century, were among the first generation to attend kindergarten, creating worlds with Froebel's cubes. And they would go on to invent cubism and modernist architecture, like the IOE. And later at the IOE, in the 1960s, the Egyptian educator Caleb Gitenyo developed a way of teaching language without speaking, the silent way, again using wooden blocks. One day in 1953, Gitenyo visited a primary school in Belgium and saw the children learning maths using wooden rods, one centimetre to ten centimetres long, painted in different colours, invented by the teacher, George Cuisinaire. Cuisinaire was a musician who noticed that children easily remembered melodies so he coloured the blocks according to the harmonies they would make if they were strings on a violin. 
sounds became colours. Halving the string length makes the same note an octave higher. So we made a rod that was half or double the length of another, the same shade. So the 2cm, 4cm and 8cm long rods were red, pink and brown, all reddish shades. And the 3 and 6 were greenish shades, and the 5 and 10 yellowish. Sounds became colours. Colours now became lengths. And like Froebel, Gatenio had a kind of epiphany. He realised these blocks could be used for teaching all sorts of things. Now, start with the little white one and go up. Say the colours. White, red, light, green, crimson, yellow. The meaning of the blocks could be transformed. They could become anything. Good. Now, let's find their new names if we call the white one, one. If the white one is one, what's the name of the red? Two. Two. And the light green? Three. And the purple? Four. And the yellow? Five. So the white block could be the number one and the red block the number two. Or the red block could be one and the white block a half. Or the red block could be the color red or the sound ur or a stick, or a house, or a person, or fire, or anger. The green block could be the number three, or the colour green, or another person, or a tree, or envy. So by naming the blocks at the start, almost like a kind of alchemy, the teacher could create a small world full of relationships. The red block is next to the green block, or the girl is next to the tree, or the tree is taller than the girl, or the girl is angry with the boy, and so on. Sentences and stories could be spoken by the students about the blocks and their relationships, while the teacher was silent, simply pointing to or rearranging the blocks, making worlds and new relationships, the silent way. The silent way has been adopted around the world as a way of teaching languages. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, the silent way has been used for over 40 years to teach te reo Māori, the Māori language. Usually the first word attached to the wooden rods is the Māori word for stick or tree. Rākau. Over time they can become colours, things, feelings, people, family, family trees. Once upon a time there was a word that split into two. On the same east corner of Tavistock Square as the Rongas Kindergarten, one of the first clinics to treat children's anxiety was set up, the Tavistock Clinic, in 1920, based on the then still new theories of Sigmund Freud. The first English translations of Freud would be published by the Wolfs, who lived next door. In Vienna, Freud had studied his grandson Ernst as a toddler, and the way he would repeatedly throw objects away, saying, here, gone, here, gone, over and over. Freud thought Ernst was trying to relieve the anxiety he felt when his mother left the room by projecting his feelings about his mother onto the object and re-enacting the separation and reunion in a way he could physically control. For Freud too, in play, a cube may become a caregiver. 
what the little one has up to this time directly felt so often by the touch of the mother's breast, union and separation, it now perceives outwardly in an object which can be grasped and clasped. At the Tavistock Clinic, child psychologist Melanie Klein developed Freud's idea of projection of fantasies onto objects in play and used it to explain the psychological benefits of play. The brick, the little figure, the car, not only represent things which interest the child in themselves, but in his play with them, they always have a variety of symbolical meanings as well. Play analysis had shown that symbolism enabled the child to transfer not only interests, but also fantasies, anxieties and guilt to objects other than people. Thus a great deal of relief is experienced in play and this is one of the factors which make it so essential for the child. The cubes become symbols which can be used to recreate and to an extent control our emotional worlds, crystallizing them into forms we can reshape, recrystallize. So in play with blocks, we can reenact the holding and the letting go of loving relationships, the tension and the relief, the tunis of a mutual gaze the urge to connect, to transform and grow, and to turn away from the two-ness, the split oneness of our first relationship to a new third other, second person to third person, from you to a they who becomes you again. New symmetries and harmonies, recrystallizing relationships, projecting onto things or sounds, our fears and our heart's desires, and whatever we need to comfort ourselves through the cold, dark nights. And through mathematics lessons, in two and three, and geometry, and imagining what the unknown might be. The ABC of things must precede the ABC of words and give to the words their true foundations. And so along the fourth side of the square, back to the south corner, back to Virginia. It was odd, she thought, how if one was alone, one lent to inanimate things, trees, streams, flowers, felt they expressed one, felt they became one. The 
This episode was created, written, produced and edited by Michael Rumbelow. Johanna Fay was the executive producer. Brett Lashua and Will Brem were the producers. Vicky Mitchum played Virginia Woolf and Bertha Ronga. Dave Jackson played Friedrich Froebel, Karl Marx and Charles Dickens. And Simone Datzberger played Melanie Klein. Studio audio technicians were Patrick Robinson and Simon Vores. Thank you to Sifo Lacour, Adrian Rook, Greg Wagstaff and the National Film Board of Canada for kindly giving permissions to use recordings. And a special thank you to Jean for the Minecraft interview and stop-motion animation. With many thanks to Professor Alf Coles for educating my awareness. For full references and credits of archive recordings, sound effects and music, and further resources, please see the episode website. There is also a transcript with footnotes giving background details about some of the elements of the episode. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Aktas, Ubafemi Ogunleye, Dian Jiang, Annabella Afroboateng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Kie Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed Flux was created by Joseph Minadeo of Pattern-Based Music. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the SACDEV Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Rumbelow and I hope you enjoyed my episode. <laughs>